0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. My name is Melissa and I'm so glad you all are here with us this morning as we continue on in our series on prayer. Just to remember, uh, to remind you of the overarching path that we've been on since we've come back to meeting in person. We started in the first half of the book of Acts and we started to look at the marks of the early church. What was marking this community of people who were God's people doing God's uh, mission here on earth? Because right now, if we turn on the news, we can see that in some ways our church in America is not living up to her original intent. And we wanna be a people coming together in the way of Jesus. So we looked at the marks of the early church and now we're doing a deep dive into prayer. And for that, we left the book of Acts for a moment to turn to the words and life of Jesus Christ. And so in the course of his ministry on earth, Jesus taught people how to pray. We have two of those teachings recorded in what we now refer to as the Lord's Prayer, and one in Luke, one in Matthew. The words are a little bit different, but this just reminds us of the theme, the arc of it remains the same, because Jesus, of course, would have taught these lessons time and time again as he was in different villages and with different groups of people. So today we go to the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Um, Also within this series, we've been doing prayer cards and different prayer practices, like reading the Lord's Prayer together to have that shape us. Oops, if you didn't notice, I missed last week. I got halfway through my sermon and realized I missed that part of reading it together. My bad, sorry. But we also have been having these prayer cards and our intent has been that each week we would share a different practice of prayer with you because sometimes prayer life can get a little stuck or just need some, some change or it's good to practice in different ways. So these are intended for you to collect them and, and just leave them in your Bible or at your bedside. Today, the practice that we're pushing into is reading pre-written prayers. I took today's prayer, which we'll get to a little further on in the sermon, from the Book of Common Prayer. In my own life, I never really dove into corporate pre-written prayer. I never did. I just grew up in church, and when I was saying words that were previously written with a group of people, I kinda checked out, I'm just being honest with you guys. It didn't feel like my own prayer language with age and with trying different prayer practices, I've come to appreciate what beauty there is in joining in with prayers that the church has prayed together through history, through different nations and different languages, but the prayers shared with the community of saints, there's beauty in that. The one I gave you that I picked from the Book of Common Prayer for this morning is a prayer of confession. We'll get a little bit more later on this morning and why I picked that one, but when you come up for communion, I encourage you to take this, for sometimes when your prayers just get stuck, you can lean in on the prayers of the ancient church uh, in your time with the Lord. Anyway, back to the Lord's Prayer. In the version that we're reading, we're learning from the NRSV version in Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus says, uh, last week he pushed into the first part, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So last week, we really went into what was going on here where the people of God were being taught to pray out for kingdom inbreaking. God, let our hearts line up with your will, with your kingdom. Would your name be made holy by you, holy God. Bring kingdom flourishing, big, divine, holy requests that we're bringing before the Lord. And then we go right to this. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. And then Jesus goes on to teach, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's not my favorite group of verses in the Bible, just personally being honest. But we're going to talk about it. So we go from this big holy acknowledgement of who God is to daily bread. And we notice in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, remember last week we talked about your will, your kingdom, your holy name. And this second half, it's us. It's give us, forgive us, deliver us. It still remains a prayer for the people of God, not just individualistic at all. So first we acknowledge who God is, offering praise and posture, and then we go to simple, physical, everyday needs. Remember last week Jesus had taught his disciples you don't need to babble. Doesn't mean keep your list short, right? It means you don't need to get the attention of a finicky God by using all kinds of fancy words. Your Father knows what you need and wants to give you good gifts, and that includes everyday physical human needs. We're saying, you're heavenly, you're holy, and I can talk to you about the simple needs of my human body, my my little self, and you care. This little phrase, this switch from the holy to the daily is really, really beautiful and striking. The word daily bread, fun fact I didn't know before this past week, this word only shows up twice in the two accounts of the Lord's Prayer. Not only in the original Greek, not only in all of Scripture, but in the ancient texts that we have access to. There's a rumor that it showed up on a household receipt for daily goods, but only that we have the writing that somebody said they found it. We don't even have the original receipt. That's really weird when that happens. So you have to think, and a lot of people put a lot of ink to the question, what was meant by this word? And what it seems to be getting at is this word group in Greek that means being or substance. So daily, the word that we've picked as this translation, seems to be getting at the idea that this is, this is essential for our being. Our very being needs this. The gu- uniqueness of this word still leads us in all ways to two themes. themes, Simplicity and dependence. Nijay Gupta's book on the Lord's Prayer is excellent if you guys want to borrow it. Simplicity and dependence, recognizing we rely on God, we need God, and we need God to meet very real daily physical needs, the simplicity of it, and God cares. In this transition, I love the earthiness, how we get right to this, like, I need bread to, like, live. There's something gritty about it. It doesn't separate the spiritual from the physical. And that's really important. I think sometimes in our prayer life, we can feel like it's always supposed to be some kind of particular experience, some mountaintop encounter with God. It's beautiful when that happens, but prayers also are gritty and physical, not just about a spiritual experience. It's about an exchange and a relationship with a God who cares about the physical. Jesus honors and incorporates both and both matter to God. Let's talk about daily bread for a minute. For the people hearing this, this would have spoken this idea of the essential substance being delivered daily. Remember, Jesus is bringing in the new Exodus, right? The new freedom for the captives, which harkens back in this kingdom talk to the Exodus in the Old Testament, where the people of God were rescued from their slavery in Egypt and taken out into the wilderness. But they cried out to God because they, they, needed, they needed food, they needed sustenance, and they were scared once they were freed. And so I'm gonna go into Exodus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That phrase, what is it, translates to manna. So they called it, what is it? I actually love that naming technique. What is it is what they always called it. They never gave it a name. It just was always called, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So that manna concept, that daily bread concept, points to divine provision and our dependence on God. Remember, this this culture, we didn't have refrigerators, right? You really did need the substance for that day. And manna, if you didn't trust God and you tried to hoard more manna than you needed, it rotted except on the Sabbath. You could take two portions before the Sabbath to make it through that day. But if you hoarded anything else, it got rotten and gross because God was trying to make sure you were maintaining a dependent relationship on Him. You can't go off to Costco and get manna for 10 days and be like, thanks God, see you in a week. You needed every single day to have that provision and that dependence on the Lord. The imagery of bread also is rich and goes deeper throughout all of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this imagery about banquet, right, where God is preparing the feast. God, not us, in Psalm 23, lays a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In Isaiah uh, 25, 6 through 8, Isaiah foretells of a time when God is going to be the one to lay the banquet table with all the provision you could dream of. And the kingdom that that promised was being ushered in by Jesus. Table fellowship was a really big part of Jesus's earthly ministry. And he was breaking bread with sinners and tax collectors. In John, Jesus calls himself even the bread of life. And I'll get back, I'll read that passage in just a minute. But then of course there's the moment when in the Lord's table, the breaking of the bread. And Jesus is always saying like, this this is me, this is my body. So we had just had uh, this moment when the people were asking for a miraculous sign, like the manna. They referred back to the manna to Jesus. And Jesus said, we're in John 6, verse starting in 32, John said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so this this imagery of bread and manna and daily, all of this wraps together. So this prayer for daily bread acknowledges our physical gritty needs as human, but also acknowledges that God is the one who provides absolutely everything. And so it's all big, deep, rich imagery, but a simple need, and we get to take that to God. And also remember, this is beyond us. So in those prayers that we were praying for actual food to people in Afghanistan, we're praying for us, pay the people, give us what we need. So we as the church get the honor of praying that prayer, not only for our own needs, but for the needs of people around the world. But then, then things get radical. Forgive us as we forgive others and then those other verses that I confessed I didn't love, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your father will forgive you, but if you don't, neither will your father forgive you. Okay, we're just gonna get straight to it. We're walking into some territory with dangerous conversations that nobody likes to have. Number one, it suddenly sounds like the love of God is conditional, and that the forgiveness of God is conditional, and worse yet, conditional on our own ability to do something that we really don't love doing. That statement is not true, we'll get back to that later, but it sure does sound that way. And so there's danger zone number one. Danger zone number two is I imagine right about now some of you have somebody on your mind and you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but Melissa, you don't know about what this person did. And I just sit here and say to you, I, I would love to hear your story and there's some really awful stories. And it's true. And so this gets hard. And right now you kind of want to tune out because that person just came onto your mind. Holy Spirit, just release those stories for the moment. Set them aside from our hearts and our minds so that we can continue to hear your word without the corruption and dirtiness of of sins committed against us getting in the way of your holy work being done in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we took care of that really quickly. We'll get back to that part too. But number three, talking about forgiveness means we have to talk about trespasses, which means that somebody's gonna sit in the front of a church and start talking about sins and how we're sinners, and nobody likes that part either. At least, I don't know of anybody who does. So, let's talk about it and just get that part over with. The Lord's Prayer presumes and confesses sin. We are forgiven and not perfect. This petition is a testimony to the fact that God is not yet done forgiving and correspondingly, we are not yet done sinning. It's just a fact. But God also, don't miss that part, is not done forgiving yet. Now, I pause because I've had multiple conversations with people who say, and I really appreciate the truth in this, I don't wanna go to church and have to talk about how awful I am. I'm actually not that bad of a person. And if I go there and I'm reading prayers that confess that I'm so awful, then I just feel awful. And already the world makes me feel awful. I don't wanna feel that way at church. So let me just unpack this a little bit. And also remind you that, okay, so let's say you're on the other side and you're like, my sin is actually too big. There is no sin too big for the grace of Jesus Christ and it's offered to everyone. But if you fall in that first camp and you're like, I hate how we always have to talk about how we're so sinful and all of that. I understand. I hear you. Okay, this is what's going on when we talk about sin. I'm just going to back it up and I'm going to make it about me so that I'm not projecting onto you what you need to say to God. I was thinking about sin a lot this week because as it happens, I was needing to preach about it. And I was thinking about it just even in my own life. The fact of the matter is it's hard for us to remember, even if we're overall pretty good people, that God is holy completely and utterly holy. The Bible Project actually is a great short video of the concept of holiness and atonement is hard that talks about the fact that God's holiness makes him so completely other that we cannot come with any sin into his presence without damage to us. That's why it's so loving that God made a path so that we could be in his presence, even though I started thinking about all the ways I sinned this week and I was like, I'm a pretty good person, but like, wow, there was a list there. For sure. And so it's a protective thing. God wants relationship. That's why the way of Jesus matters. But let's talk about this thing where we're confessing that we're so sinful and it makes us maybe feel bad, but really it's just reminding us, God, we know we can't come to your presence without Jesus because the damage would come to us. In this week alone, I was thinking for myself, some, some, I've had times in my life where I've like done a doozy of a sin and had to go up with a doozy of a sin to God. But most of the time, my daily just fallenness just gets in my way, right? Like, for example, I want to grow, to love God and love others. All right, loving God. I also really love the approval of others, Lord, help me never love that more than I love you. That's what I'm saying, I'm prone to a slippery slope. And a confession of needing God is saying, I need you to help me not to love others' approval more than I love your approval. Okay, let's talk about loving others. Just this week alone, I went to go and register our kids for high school. Two kids in the same school in high school, can you believe it? I'm excited and scared. Anyway, I, I sinned in my heart against so many people. They were having the most ridiculous system. I did not trust their organization. I was horribly impatient. I was like, how long does it take to swipe a credit card? People, I didn't say it but my heart was sinning left and right. I'm just being honest with you guys. If our heart posture in trying to love others struggles in any way, or when we hold ourselves as judge, I did that too. This woman's organizational system was awful. I was like, mine would be so much better. I I know a better way. And so like, if you're holding yourself a judge, it's even in those little things, okay? So I give you my sins there confess in the company of believers, right? I just did that. But I did that because it's important to remember that we pray prayers of confession because it keeps us posture to remember we need God, and we need a savior, and we're not the savior. So that's why I gave you a confession card this week. It's just to help you remember I need God, I need a savior. I'm not the savior, and I'm not the judge, and I'm not the one who needs to do that role in this community or in this city. So. Help our hearts to be postured right. Okay, so now, um, forgiving. Let's talk about forgiving. We already talked about the trespasses. Forgiving uh, trespasses. It, it's the idea. You know, like the old school accounting ledgers. I've never used one, but I've seen them, where you like write the the debt, the debt that somebody has and they've marked a debt against you, and then you put it in the positive uh, column when they've paid that debt off, right? So forgiving carries the idea of letting it go or releasing from a constraint, a release from a debt or obligation. Hear this, church. It doesn't mean you didn't feel the hurt or that you're supposed to get over it or that it didn't matter. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's release from the debt that came against your ledger in the red. So in the ancient Near East where this, uh, the culture where this was taking place, it was an honor and shame culture. And the way that this meant a hurt against one's pride, retaliation and retribution were promoted, not just expected, but like promoted as a cultural value. That's how you would take care of a debt against your personhood. You hurt me. I need to restore that honor because I'm currently sitting under the shame you just caused me. I have a right to put something else in my ledger so that you no longer are indebted to me, okay? So that was the culture there. It was saying to cancel a debt without retribution was countercultural. It's a little different for us. I was thinking about this this week. What's our culture do when a debt is done against us? We avoid, we flee, I don't have time for that, and we go, we maybe gossip behind somebody's back. That's another one that is, you know what they did. So we like get our revenge by causing more harm, you know what I mean? Or or, or we just avoid, like I'm out of here, I want nothing to do with that. Or just the idea that we're supposed to tolerate anybody or anything, you know? That whole like I'll just I'm gonna get over it, and then there's uh, resentment. That's when you know you're doing that. That uh, tool in your toolkit, resentment starts up. Anyway, so their culture, revenge was your right. Our culture, we might be more prone with avoidance or gossip or some other things. But what this is saying is still countercultural to us because it's saying we have to face it. We have to face that hurt and do something with it. When we're talking. This, uh, this instruction is for the community of believers, by the way. So I'll get into that a little bit more. So in this concept, we're talking about instructions for people living their life together as people of faith. And the expectation when you're living your life that way is life on life, you're going to get some friction. There's, It's going to happen. So this, the first thing we talked about, um, the first warning thing was, right, it makes God's forgiveness seem conditional. And that's not the... That, Not the case. I need to slow down, sorry. The need to ask for forgiveness is not about renewing our eternal salvation. It's about purifying our daily lives. This is from uh, Gupta as well. It strengthens our relationship with God and with others so that we may serve as holy vessels to do God's work in the world. So what that means is that being a forgiven person, means that you also wanna daily purify our lives and our relationships in such a way that we can be forgiving people and live that out. Think of it kind of as um, being forgiven by God, which we are when we've stepped into this, this, uh, this Jesus way. It's reciprocal, reciprocal, but in a way that you can kind of pay that forgiveness forward to somebody else even if they don't deserve it from you, you still have it to give to somebody else, to even out their ledger. In Matthew 18, one of the disciples asks Jesus, okay, but how many times do I need to forgive a brother? So I'm gonna start in 21, and I might kind of paraphrase this. This is the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Peter said, how many times do I forgive somebody who uh, sins who sins against me. Seven times, and Jesus says, no, seven times seven, which isn't actually for the math. It's uh, Seven is a number of perfection, and it's like totally times totally is what that seven times seven means. Um, and so then he tells this story. He tells the story, I'm just going to paraphrase, about um, a, a master who has, uh, somebody owes him a debt of like the equivalent of millions. He owes him this debt. And he comes, the master comes and is like, You need to pay me my millions back. And the guy is like, I can't do it. I don't have it. Falls down and begs forgiveness. And the person was like, oh, Okay, I forgive you your debt. And then the guy goes off and he's like, Hey, you, friend, you owe me thousands. And the guy turns to him and begs and is like, I don't, I don't have it. I can't pay you back. And the person who had been forgiven the millions, turns to the one who owes thousands and says, too bad for you, you're going into jail until you can pay me back. And that's the wicked person in this parable that stands forgiven and doesn't forgive others in return. So that's the, that's the, the place where Jesus is saying like, in response to how many times you've been forgiven, you be forgiving to that person. Now, remember, this is an assumption that these people are still in community together. The assumption in this parable is that you and I are going to be in life together so long that I'm going to have to forgive you seven times seven times because we're doing real life together. I can't just walk away when it hurts. There's an assumption in there. But there also is an assumption in this, and, I, and I'll get more to this in a minute, that, there's, um, that you're, you're having this encounter with somebody who's following your same way of life. And I would say that, so there's a place in here where forgiveness, we'll get back to that in a minute. So this, is, this instruction is for, when you're in the life with believers, that's how many times. And we think, of course, I'll do this one really quickly, of the story of the prodigal son, where the damage was done, the reputation and the hurt to the father, basically the son disowns the father, takes his inheritance, spends it all, and when the son realizes I've done a bad thing, I'm gonna go back and just try to be a slave in his household. Not even be forgiven, just be like fed, you know, and find work with him because I've messed up so badly. When he comes back, he finds the father scanning the horizon for the son who's been wandered off and running. It was not uh, dignified for a man to run in his way of life. He's got rings, he's wealthy, his robes would be flapping. It's not dignified to run in that culture. He runs to the sun, embraces him. He's so ready to forgive. That's an active posture of like, I can't wait to forgive you and have our relationship made right again. So I give you that one as well. N.T. Wright talks about it and paints this picture in a way that I think is really compelling, especially as we we remember that the two different tellings of the Lord's Prayer are in two different Gospels because Jesus was teaching in multiple settings, right? And he writes says Jesus was going from village to village throughout the lovely Galilean countryside, announcing the kingdom had arrived, that forgiveness of sins was happening, that God was transforming his people. And when people responded to his call, he gave them instructions on how they should live as forgiveness of sins people. They were to live in each village or town as a cell of kingdom people, and particularly having received God's forgiveness themselves, they were to practice it among themselves. To not do so would be to not grasp what was going on. If you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your own new experience. I love that. If you didn't live forgiveness, this prayer reminds us that if I'm actively trying to live this way, my prayer life and my living life are one. They're together. We wanna wrap up into all of our prayers. This is corporate, right? Forgive us our sins, we're praying over the sins of humanity. We're praying over the sins of others as well. Like help us to be a foretaste of this kind of kingdom forgiveness living community. We get to be a foretaste of what's to come. And you may say, oof, I feel like the church is missing the mark on this in a lot of ways. Yeah, but we can reclaim it. Every person who wants to live this way as the people of God, the church, capital C Church, I'm not saying Wrigleyville alone. Every person who calls Jesus Lord and is accepting the forgiveness and living it out as kingdom forgiveness living community people are living as a foretaste and people can see something different. Now, let's just be honest about the different perspectives of the roles we get to play in the whole who was the trespasser and the trespassee, so to speak. We already covered the one where we've trespassed against God And this prayer is a daily reminder to set our lives right again in that way. Okay. That part, I just remind you, you guys, that daily prayer of confession, like you're at the banquet. You're at the banquet that God has promised. The abundance of forgiveness and love that's already been given to you through Jesus is already there. But let's talk about when we've sinned against each other. Let's say I've sinned against you this is a desire. When I pray this prayer, it reminds me I need to go to Kristen, my friend in the fellowship. Sorry, Kristen. I needed a real person to make it real. I was the sinner, though. I didn't make you the sinner in the story. Um, I have to go to her. I have to be brave. I can't avoid it. I need to be able to say to her, Kristen, I hurt you. I'm sorry be specific in the way that I hurt you and sit in the sorrow, not because she's not going to forgive me, but because we can't just get to that get over it part that our culture talks about all the time. It's okay to sit in the hurt you caused somebody else. It's honoring to say, I'm sorry. And then of course, to receive that forgiveness. But sometimes it, okay, this situation is talking about two Christians living together who want to be reconciled. It's like the dreamy hurt. Situation, right? Because it doesn't always happen that way. And we know that. And so uh, in a situation where um, we've hurt somebody and uh, we don't know it, this is where I feel like we need to call each other as the church out of avoidance. If we're hearing each other talk about a hurt that somebody else has put on us, we can be brave and remind that person, just go and talk and seek reconciliation. It can be hard, but we can do it. Don't allow uh, that little trick where like your prayer requests are really like, let me tell you this gossip story. We have to be brave to say, no, reconciliation is possible. Melissa can't know that she hurts you unless you tell her. Trust your brothers and sisters in Christ to handle that encounter with respect and with love. And and we we have to be brave in the work of reconciliation. But I would say something else. I also just wanna honor that there are hurts that have been put on you by people who aren't living life uh, longing for reconciliation or who aren't safe. The idea of forgiveness does not mean you need to stay in any relationship or position that is hurtful or abusive or threatening to your well-being. The Bible also, guess what? It doesn't say you have to forgive and forget. The wounds we take from this life along the way They mark us. I was thinking about this this morning. Okay, give me a minute for an imperfect analogy, right? So let's say like the wounds, the hurts that people have put onto me, let's use those as like physical hurts and then the healing process, right? So like Friday, I burned myself making rice. It's a little tender, it has a mark, it's gonna heal, it's gonna be gone, and I am gonna forget it even happened. So there's like that kind of hurt that happens, a trespass against me, is forgiven, it's healed and we move on and we're fine. But there are also marks on my body from old wounds. My body didn't forget the time that the dog ran me into a wall, a brick and it scraped. It didn't forget the time that the doctor took out my appendix. There are marks on me from the hurts that happened, the trespasses, that's okay. That's part of our embodied experience that even as they heal, some trespasses do leave marks on our lives. I have one, especially hurtful trespass surgery that was really invasive. You guys, it still hurts sometimes. And that was two years ago. It scarred up ugly. It didn't heal pretty. It's still part of who I am in my experience, even though I'm the healed is like the forgiven in this imperfect analogy, right? Your life will be marked by some of the trespasses. The Bible isn't saying forget about it or it doesn't matter or any of those things. The world says get over it. It's It's forgive, mark the ledger clean and don't hold, you don't need to sit in a judgment place where you are now owed something back from that person. You can forgive them when they seek reconciliation. What about the bad guys who just hurt us and never seek reconciliation? I would just say this and this, I don't know long enough to go into this deeply, but forgiveness also is a gift of release. When we're talking not about the emotion of feeling reconciled, but canceling a debt, It means that you can leave that judge and jury position to God who saw that evil and you don't need to carry it. Sometimes forgiveness means release so you can be free of an awful wound. Does that make sense? If anybody wants to talk about anything that's being triggering in any of this, I'm 100% there for this. This stuff gets hard to talk about because the wounds that you've endured matter. What I'm calling to you here and what Jesus is talking about is reconciling in the community of believers in those moments of life where we rub each other wrong and we hurt each other. When we step on each other's toes, let's be people who can forgive each other well and be a foretaste of that kind of community. I think I'm going long. Um, I'm gonna go quickly on the last part. Let me just summarize it this way. When Jesus now turns and says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hold the show. What kind of God would lead us to temptation? That sounds all wrong, like, God is supposed to be loving and good. That's correct. What this is talking about is in, I'm gonna summarize it this way. This is a prayer at the end of all of these radical things we've prayed for, for spiritual protection. It's an acknowledgement that there is a spiritual battle going on in this world. The temptation here means a testing, a trial or a tribulation, not like tempt me to cheat on my diet or something like that. It's talking about a time of testing. It's a spiritual tribulation. It's a reality in the spiritual realm. Christianity lives in faith knowing that the utter, God is utterly good. It is impossible for God to be complicit in evil. So I'll give you a couple of tools. Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So I'm giving you spiritual or scriptural references for this. James 1.13, no one when tempted should say I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. So don't be deceived. Basically what that's saying there is that God isn't the one doing the tempting. What we're crying out is, uh, don't leave me in testing. Don't leave me, God when I'm in temptation. Don't leave me or forsake me when I am in a time of trial and don't let me be overcome. First Corinthians 10:13. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will also provide the way out so you may be able to endure it. What that means is testing and trial will come. God is never the author of any evil or sin. But when that comes, God, don't leave me in my testing. Show me the way out. And scripture is a huge piece. And prayer, that's why we're diving into prayer. Prayer is such an important tool in the reality of the spiritual battle that is in this world. We have to recognize the reality of power and the power of evil and in order to uh, face it. It has to be able to, we have to be able to say, like, this is a reality, I'm not gonna avoid it. So then I can face it through the power of Jesus, which is what we can do. You can't pray this prayer from a safe distance. This is real, deep, spiritual battle stuff. And we remember as well, Paul reminds us in Romans 8, that that when we feel like we can't even pray, we don't even have the words, the spirit joins us. The spirit joins us with words we don't even understand and can hold us in prayer. That's why we can have a prayer posture even without words. The whole world is groaning for this kingdom inbreaking to come. And so this part of the prayer, I would say as I close, is just a reminder that we have, don't be sleepy. The enemy is prowling like a lion waiting for someone to devour, and that imagery, while it sounds a little bit like Narnia or something, the fact of the matter is, what it's getting to is a deep truth. There is a spiritual battle out there, and this prayer, this whole prayer, don't let it ever be wrote in our reading it or in your clinging to it in times of temptation. There is huge, spiritual, holy, beautiful, sacred tool being used to protect us from the evil one. So as we close, I would just wanna do something um, that we do every week, but just say a few words around our communion table, especially for today. It struck me that in multiple parts of this prayer in my reading, I was reading a lot this week, um, the Eucharist table kept coming up in different ways. First of all, of course, we think of it with the daily bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Whenever you take this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And as we've been praying this holy prayer, I would just remind us like when we take this bread and drink this cup, we are remembering that we, yes, we need forgiveness for the trespasses we have done and the way that we have that is through the body and blood of Jesus. We thank Jesus when we take this Eucharist cup. But I would also say this, there's teaching in scripture that says before you come to this table, because this is like a whole church reconciling with Christ as the head moment. That's like the big dealness of the Lord's Supper. But the thing that I would remind you of is this, is that it says, if you go to the table and you remember that you have a grievance against a brother or sister, stop. Go and be reconciled with them before you come up. And what that means is that we take a moment to posture ourselves now to think, is there something that I'm holding in my heart that I am ready to release from my accounting ledger? Is there somebody who's hurt me who may not even know and I need to forgive them either by uh, approaching them and doing the hard work of reconciliation within the safety of the body of Christ because the other people here are living kingdom uh, uh, forgiveness lives too. And so they will help do that hard work of reconciling and having that account ledger clean. But maybe today you realize that you're just still holding on with so much angst about somebody who's hurt you so much. And today I need to tell you, you can just be free. Forgiveness doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're not scarred. Forgiveness doesn't mean that it wasn't a travesty. It means that you can say, God, I can't hold it anymore. Will you be the judge and jury? Help me be free. And an act of forgiveness like that, the heart may take a long time to follow. Just like my scars two and a half years in and still ache some days. We are here together for that hard work. Your heart can follow, but you can release the judge and jury seat so that you may gain freedom in Jesus' name from the hurt that was given to you. And we are here, church, for that long, hard work, because that's a different kind of forgiveness than what we're talking about with the scrapes that we make in each other's lives. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that through your body and blood, you have given us access to you, the bread of life. Help us to be forgiveness people. God, it's hard to be forgiveness people. Thank you that your forgiveness isn't dependent on how well we do it, but help us be willing every day to receive the forgiveness you first gave us and to be active in trying to live that out towards others. Help our ledger sheet reflect that we have been made clean on your ledger sheet, that you see us before you, holy, righteous, and redeemed because we're covered in the very uh, mantle of, of, of Christ's self right now. You see him when you look at us because he covers us in his grace And in his forgiveness, his mercy, we thank you for that holy truth, God, that's sort of too big to grasp sometimes, but we cling to it because we believe your promises are true. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Help us to live every day as forgiveness kingdom people as well. We need your help, Holy Spirit, because that's a big prayer to ask. But we believe it in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodeschicago.com.